From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Where people live has a lot to do with how they get around, which is why the governor is changing tracks to some extent when it comes to transit. Polis and key legislators are talking about big funding boosts to public transportation across the state. And that's something the state has kind of tipped out into over the last couple of years. Then advice on growing your money from a financial advisor who learned from losses early on. Plus, books make great gifts, and not just because they're easy to wrap. A bookseller in Peonia offers holiday picks by Colorado writers, including the novel Gilded Mountain. It's got a love story. It's got a really pressing social concern. It's got a wonderful bit of Colorado history. And it has some really fabulous characters. Also, children's titles. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been the governor's drumbeat for more than two years that Denver's regional transportation district needs reform and not state money. Well, now, as the state struggles to lower carbon emissions from automobiles and as traffic worsens, Jared Polis has changed his tune somewhat. That's something our transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner learned in a conversation with the governor. Hi, Nate. Hey, Ryan. First off, how you and I, how all Coloradans get around is closely related to where and how we live. And we know Governor Polis pushed a big housing and land use bill last session, which failed. So before we talk specifically about RTD and transit in general, remind us what he was trying to do with that big housing stuff. Yeah, that big bill would have forced local governments to allow more and denser housing. So things like duplexes, triplexes, apartments, and especially around existing transit corridors. The idea, and this does have academic research backing it, the idea is that more housing, more housing types beyond just big single family homes can actually temper housing prices. So if single-family homes are the most expensive kinds of homes, I guess this would have allowed for smaller, more affordable ones. Yeah, that's right. Lots of American cities only allow single-family homes in most neighborhoods. But more recently, cities like Minneapolis, Portland, sort of peers of Denver, they've made it easier to build duplexes, triplexes, apartments, these things we're talking about, across more of their neighborhoods. And in those places, they've seen rent steady, and there are more for-sale homes at relatively cheaper prices. And I think that's what the governor looked at. That's what really motivated him. Well, and he has said as well that if you build those types of homes near transit, you reduce people's transportation costs, right? You're not filling up your tank, and that's affordability too. So there's affordability. There's also a climate angle here. Uh, A lot of research out there shows that tighter, denser cities are generally better for the climate because people drive less versus if you're in a sprawling suburb, that's kind of your only option. It's also more efficient to heat and cool homes when they're connected to each other. 
This large land use and zoning bill was divisive, and it ultimately failed. It did, yes, in spectacular fashion, right at the end of the session. Most local governments hated it because it would have taken away some of their power. But another common complaint was the state was trying to force housing density, but not providing any new transit service to go along with it. Okay. Now I get that with all of the there connections we, you've, the background. Yeah, you've drawn for us. So mayors were saying... If you're going to make us build our cities in a way that discourages driving, <laughs> we we need bus and train service, too. Yes. And now, months later, it's clear that the governor is sympathetic to that concern. We did a lot of listening. Uh, we had, uh, you know, very formal meetings with hundreds of uh, residents in Grand Junction and Pueblo and Fort Collins and Aurora across the state and uh, informally with hundreds of more people, local elected officials, home builders, affordable housing advocates uh, to really help inform a more comprehensive strategy. So where housing was the big push last time, this new roadmap from the governor has that and transit in it, too. Mm. It's really his vision for the state over the next few years that aims to make Colorado more affordable, more climate friendly, essentially more livable. Really, all the partners that touch transit and housing need to work together to create this vision of a more livable and affordable Colorado to prevent us from becoming another California with higher costs, 12-lane highways that have rush hours that are six hours a day, uh, that's not a future that most Coloradans want. And we can still avoid that and really improve the quality of life and improve affordability if we act now and we act boldly together. Are there specifics yet? Not yet. It's a roadmap, right? So it's kind of vague. But I checked in with a top lawmaker and know that there will be bills coming on this in the next session. Okay. We haven't seen those yet, but polis and key legislators are talking about big funding boosts to public transportation across the state. And that's something the state has kind of tipped out into over the last couple of years, right? Think of CDOT's new Bustang service, for example. But this would be bigger. It would be bigger, yeah. So the governor wants to spend more money on CDOT's transit services, on new passenger rail lines along I-25, maybe even to Steamboat Springs. And most importantly, I think, more state money for local transit agencies in cities. Would that include RTD and Metro Denver, of which the governor has been critical, Nate? It sure would. And there are some wrinkles here that are worth kind of getting into, I think. RTD is by far the biggest transit provider in the state. Mm -hmm. It's only operating about 70% of the bus and train service it offered before the pandemic. And because of budget constraints, it can only afford to bring back about 85%. That delta, that difference is really frustrating to riders, to mayors, to suburban communities, and to the governor. He wants RTD to double its service. Gosh, in contrast to not even currently being able to get back to 85%. That's right, okay. yeah. One reason the governor has been critical of RTD is that unfinished Boulder train. Let's not forget he's from Boulder. Yes, and he's wanted to reform RTD for a long time because of that. He still wants to do that, but he now acknowledges that RTD needs more money too. So I think rather than talk about reform first and then uh, resources later, I think the conversation we're having now is, is let's do both. Let's show our commitment to transit, but let's make sure we have transit agencies that can have the confidence of the people of Colorado, the confidence of the governor, and the confidence of the legislature. Is RTD excited by that? Well, I checked in with the chair of the board of directors. She says she'd love to see RTD add more service and that the agency is open to more state accountability as long as it comes with more state money. Speaking of money, I want to talk just briefly before we go about how much it costs to ride RTD's buses and trains. They were free 
Over the summer for the Better Air campaign, Nate, how did that work out? It actually boosted ridership quite a bit, like it did last year in 2022. In August, RTD says more than six and a half million people rode the bus and train, the most since February 2020. So it was a big success in that regard. It was less successful, though, at its stated goal of taking cars off the road and improving air quality. Huh. Square that for us. So it it helped, right? The Regional Air Quality Council did a little analysis, and they estimated that it reduced driving by 150,000 miles per day. Okay. But that's just not that much. There are something like 83 million miles traveled daily in the Denver metro. Oh. A drop in the bucket. Yeah. So air quality was actually better last summer, but experts say that's because of the cooler, wetter weather. So we can say that there is a connection between the cost of fares and ridership. To that end, RTD fares are getting cheaper soon, right? Yeah, that's right. RTD has been working on this for a couple of years now. It's finally going to happen. They are both simplifying fares and making them cheaper. So as of January 1st, 2024, Rides will go from $3 down to $275. And the biggest savings, actually, is on the monthly pass. That's $200 now. Next month in January, it's going to go down to $88. So big drop, more than half. Uh, Strange for an agency that says it needs more money. I don't get it. So, yeah, the simple answer here is RTD gets most of its money from a sales tax. A decline in fare revenue, it's just not going to hurt that much. RTD CEO calls the difference budget dust. Okay. It's a smaller part of the pie. That's right. And fares are getting simpler. How so? Yeah. So how much you pay scales with how far you're going now, right? So local fare is three bucks. Uh, regional fare, though, if you're going from, say, Denver to Boulder, that's five twenty-five. The airport is ten fifty. So what they're going to do is knock out that middle tier, the regional fare. So you're either going to pay the two seventy-five local fare or the airport fare. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or Unless you get that cheaper monthly pass. The monthly pass, yeah. If yeah. you ride enough, that is potentially a very good deal. Thanks so much. You're welcome. CPR's Nathaniel Miner. And you can count on our reporters to follow the governor's housing and transportation agenda as the legislature reconvenes in January. We'll be right back with our series about building wealth, even if you're starting with a negative balance. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Your car used to take you places, but it can't anymore. If you donate it to CPR, it can take you places again, down the road to new ideas, new discoveries, and through your donation, hundreds of thousands of other people will be able to come along for the ride because your donation funds the radio you rely on. Get started on the safe and simple car donation process at CPR.org support. A new year presents a new opportunity to invest and grow your money. The next voice in our personal finance series belongs to Sean Spruce. He's a consultant with the First Nations Development Institute in Longmont. Spruce teaches financial literacy classes at the Denver Indian Center, among many other places. Sean, nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you too, Ryan. How'd you get interested in investing? I came out of school in the early 1990s, and like a lot of people, I had some student loan debt, I had some credit card debt, and it was right around the time when the internet was really taking off, and there were just a lot of opportunities to learn and self-educate. And I remember I had a job, I had an internship with the city of Albuquerque in the mayor's office, and, and there was a guy there at the time who ran the the economic development department. And I asked him a little bit about investing. He said, you know what, if you, if you start taking 10% 
of every paycheck you earn here and every paycheck you're going to go on to earn throughout your career. Hmm. And you put that in good sound investments, you're going to be fine. You're never going to have to worry about money. And, and it just, it, it resonated with me. And from there, I just took off and started learning and reading and, and investing. I think you learn the most just from investing your own money because that's, that's how you really pay attention to what's going on. And from there, it grew. And then um, I, I've been doing, I've been an, an investor ever since and, and also an investor educator. Gosh, there, I have a thousand follow-ups from that story. Okay, so you you graduate college with some student loan debt, also some credit card debt. I remember that was true for me too, because you're constantly being asked to open credit cards as a student, even <laughs> before you had good credit card behavior. So h- how much debt total did you kind of enter young adulthood with? Well, I was fortunate. It wasn't a huge amount of debt. Uh-huh. I had probably about $1,500 worth of credit card debt. So it wasn't a huge, huge total. Mm-hmm. And my student loan, I still have those old statements. It was less than $10,000. It was about $8,500. So it wasn't like some of these astronomical figures you'll hear about. Sometimes these five figures, even sometimes six-figure student debts that some folks, unfortunately, are saddled with. But it was still quite a bit, I remember. And I really, really focused on paying that off. I think I ended up paying it all off in about less than three years. And I was proud of that. Now, did that have to do with the investment advice? Take 10%. And put it in, you you said good sound investments. It it does a little bit because, so I always tell people, before you start investing, you you need to check off a few basic metrics, right? You you need to have some, a pretty solid foundation, uh, financial footing to build on. And I always tell people, consumer debt, you really want to avoid consumer debt as much as possible before you start investing. Because if you're paying 23% on a credit card, uh, I mean, that's eating into your investment returns, right? So you're self-defeating. Yeah, really important to understand that if you're paying, you know, 20% on a credit card and at the same time you're getting a CD that's paying whatever, seven, that's being erased. Okay, so really good piece of advice there. Think about your debt before you think about your investments. You recently put on a workshop at the Denver Indian Center. One person in attendance was Seneca Williams. He's 42 and said he has started investing since he had children and has more than himself to think about. I look more to investments and trying to find ways to secure my money and not spend it so foolishly. Separating wants from needs and actually, are these going to boost my income? Are these things that are going to help maintain my financial security and make me more financially secure for the future? That seems to speak to some of what we've already discussed, but why don't we maybe lay out some more first steps for people who are ready to dive into investing. Absolutely. And I think Seneca really, to me, represents this new breed of investors that we have sprouting up all over the United States. And and we saw a huge increase in new investors during the pandemic when people were at home and they had extra money. A lot of folks really entered the investment realm for the first time. And I, I think Seneca is a good example of Um, A lot of people are investors and people that you might not ordinarily think of as being investors. It's not just a coat and tie affair. It's not something that just professional people do. Many, many people are really passionate about investing. And I always tell people some of the steps you want to maintain and and take care of as you begin your investing journey are to one, pay off that consumer debt if you have it. 
pay down those credit cards. Um, make sure you've got good insurance, right? You, you need to make sure you've got your your risks covered because hmm. nothing can can kill an investment nest egg faster than some sort of a, of a risk, a health risk, or some sort of a car accident or something like that can really set you back. And then just get to that point where you're living comfortably. You're able to pay all of your bills every month and cover everything that comes up. And you've got enough income. You've got positive cash flow, right? Because you don't want to be in a situation where you're just barely making it. And six months later, oh, geez, I need to sell those stocks because I've got to pay rent this month. So you need that cushion. You need to get to that point where you can just comfortably uh, predict that you're, you're going to have good, steady cash flow from month to month. Do you stick with the 10% idea that you try to think about 10% of the money you bring in as being good to invest? Well, I always encourage people, I mean, invest as much as you can, you can afford to invest, right? 10%, I think is a good guideline. I think it's a good place to start, but obviously the more, the better. If you can afford to, to invest 20% or 25% or 30%, whatever that number is for you, I think you should focus on that. I think 10% is a good benchmark to start with. What I really learned when I served on my own tribal investment committee at the Pueblo of Laguna was that investing money, whether it's an individual a person just starting out who maybe has a few thousand dollars, even a few hundred dollars, maybe in a 401k or a self-directed IRA, or maybe they've just opened a Robinhood account or something like that. The steps are the same as an institution like a tribal government or, or anyone or any other large institutional investor who's investing millions, right? You still have to pay attention to the risks. You still have to understand what types of investments, uh, whether they're stocks, whether they're bonds, fixed income, whatever that is, how they align with what your goals are, your investment goals and your strategies. And, and really, there's just more zeros at the end of these numbers, hmm. but those same basic elements of diversification and asset allocation they apply regardless of what type of level you're at as an investor. Okay. I think it's really important to have heard you say that even if you have a few hundred dollars, you can think about investing. I don't think about a few hundred dollars that way. I think like, oh, this isn't even something to begin on unless I've got, you know, a few thousand at least. Will you speak to that idea that a few hundred dollars can help build wealth. When I opened up my very first IRA, I think I had $200. I, 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 I contributed $200 and then I set myself up on a, a monthly auto contribution of $50 a month. I started with 200. Yeah. No, you don't need a huge amount of money. And I, I think it, it just grows from there. And, and I think the hardest thing that I do is just in, encouraging people to, understand that even though you might have to start small, it grows really quickly when you start investing. And the more you, you get into investing, you start realizing, geez, you know what? I, I can save a little bit extra money here. And, and I can, instead of buying a new pair of shoes or instead of going out to eat tonight, I, I actually can save that money and put it towards my investment. You just get so turned on to it. And, and the idea of just seeing those statements coming in, whether they're in the mail or whether they're emailed statements, and you see the numbers growing it's such a rewarding experience. I remember I came into a little bit of money when I turned 18. My dad died when I was really young and I got some uh, insurance money that was in a trust until I turned 18. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was a five figure, kind of a modest five figure amount. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of young people, I I just 
spent it a little bit here, a little bit there. And before I knew it, it was gone and I didn't have anything really to show for it. And I remember that was really my goal initially was I wanted to get all that money back, that inheritance that I'd had. I wanted to build that level of wealth and just kind of get back to where I had once been. And it took me, I guess it took a few years to do that. But I remember when I, when I finally, that day when I, when I opened up that mutual fund statement, and at the time that's where I had most of my money was in a couple of these mutual funds. And, and I saw that the balance was now more than what I had had with that inheritance. That was, to me, that was one of my proudest moments. That it was kind of off, off to the races from that point on. I knew the sky was the limit. I, I knew I could just continue to, to go on that path to wealth building. Well, you telling the story has given me goosebumps. I appreciate you sharing it. And when you invoked like, um, you know, I don't know, blowing your money on a, an unnecessary pair of shoes or something like that. One thing we've heard throughout this series is that it's really important to have a goal because if you have a North Star as an investor, it's easier to say no to the frivolous pair of shoes or what have you. Uh, talk to me about the importance of goals, whether they're short-term or long-term. If you have a goal, let's say you've got a, maybe you want to purchase a house in five years, or maybe you're thinking more long-term, like a retirement that could be in 20 years or 30 years. I mean, those are totally different types of investment strategies. So actually designing an investment portfolio to address that goal, that's actually the easy part. Uh -huh. The hardest part is just kind of figuring out what you want, when you want it, and how you want to achieve it. Let's maybe pick a timeline and then pick a good product to go with it. Make this kind of brass tacks. So let's say I'm saving for a vacation I want to take in a year or two versus maybe I'm saving for a house that I'd like to see manifest in three to five years. Well, for that short-term goal, the vacation in a year or two, you're going to stay out of the stock market, right? Because that's just too short a time frame. Too much can happen. It can be too volatile. And right now, with interest rates like they are, I mean, you know, there's some really good rates now on certificates of deposits and or CDs and, and money markets. So I would encourage somebody play it safe there. Go with something FDIC insured or maybe get a get a money market through a mutual fund. Won't have the FDIC insurance, but still pretty rock solid in terms of safety. And you can get nice returns on that. You can get you can get a good 5% return right now, annual return. And you put that away for a year or two, and you're going to have a lot of money for that vacation. Now, if you're looking at that home purchase, then you're going out more than five years. And yeah, if you look at five, 10 years and out, it's hard to beat equities, right? It's hard to beat stocks in terms of those uh, long range projections. And sure, stocks have good years and they have bad years, but overall, they're pretty solid. If you can afford to keep that money and let it sit for a, a pretty, at least five years, in most cases, you're going to be pretty well served by investing mostly in some type of a stock portfolio. And I always recommend the mutual funds just because it's just a lot easier, especially for a beginning investor. If you don't, you don't, most people are, unless you have the time and the expertise to really pick your own types of securities, you're better off just putting that money in a mutual fund and then learning and educating yourself as you go. And then maybe play around a little bit with picking your own stocks. But especially in the, in the early stages, just stick with a, with a good, solid index fund or any type of balanced mutual fund that's got a good track record. It's been around a few years. You, know, you avoid these funds that have just kind of popped up recently. You know, Look at that inception date and make sure it's got a pretty good track record. And look at those fees. Make sure you're, you're paying those low fees on those funds because they can really range. Some, some mutual funds have very high fees compared yes. to others. 
and just sit back and for most people don't look at it every day you'll drive yourself crazy doing that just pay attention make sure you read those quarterly reports when they come out or if anything big happens in the markets you know go ahead and look at your own portfolio and see how it reacts but for the most part i think most people are are, are kind of hands off when it comes to investments and they don't want it to be something that they just have to to spend hours and hours on a week having to strategize and having to rebalance their portfolios and, and for folks like that uh I think a strategy like mutual funds is, is a good approach. Okay. So we've mentioned stocks, mutual funds. We've mentioned CDs. Should we be talking about gold? Should we be talking about real estate? Well, gold is a fun one. I, people always ask me, what about gold? What about gold? And it's so exciting. And there's something about that luscious yellow metal. (laughs) Since since the beginning of time, it's been a hedge against inflation. And in times of uncertainty, people go to gold and and more and more people was like, come on, gold, it's so antiquated. But yet we still see play in the gold market. There's still a lot of gold bugs out there. And um, I always tell people there's a difference between collectibles and what we think of as investments, right? I mean, some people invest in in baseball cards or Cupid dolls or old Pez dispensers and things like that. And those can be worth a lot of money, but they can be very volatile. They're very speculative. And I always encourage people when you think of precious metals, investments like that, yeah, you can do okay with those, but, but think of it more like a hobby as a collectible item and just Mm. be very wary of the fact that it's it's going to be hard to predict from year year in and year out, but I wouldn't rule them out. I remember I bought some gold back in the '90s. I can't remember. I bought gold at about three hundred and forty dollars an ounce. I bought just a few ounces, not a lot, and I still have it. And even even adjusting for inflation, it's it's done okay. But compared to a stock portfolio going back twenty five years, it's certainly underperformed that. But it's wow. nice to have. It's nice to show people. It's cool to hold it in your hand, right? That's 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 the value there. That's what makes it so cool. <laughs> that heaviness, that heft of gold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I mean, this cryptocurrency stuff, right? That's I mean, you, it's it's cool. It's exciting. It's sexy, but. Sometimes you just want to be able to hold whatever it is in your hand and know, hey, this has been valued since since the beginning of time or for centuries, for millennia. I want to pick up on something you said there, which is that it's important that your investment be doing better than inflation because otherwise you're just losing money, right? Right. You've got to be ahead of inflation. And especially now, we've seen a little bit of an ease now with inflation, right? But boy, people definitely need to pay attention to inflation and and also, you know, I mean, think about it. You, you, maybe you've got a few thousand dollars today. What's that few thousand dollars going to be worth? What's the purchasing power of that money going to be in, in 20 years or 30 years adjusting for inflation? I always tell people inflation is what it's going to cost tomorrow to maintain the standard of living you have today. Ah. That's a, an easy way to understand inflation. And something to keep in mind as you invest. Okay. I want to ask about brand names in stocks. So, You know, there are companies that are in the news a lot that are familiar to us if it's uh, Boeing or IBM or Exxon. When, When you talk about, especially for folks who are new to stocks, do you encourage them to go with brands they know or maybe something the experts might recommend they've never heard of, though? I do. Well, first of all, I don't encourage people in, in my workshops to, to speculate in any stocks until they've done a lot of research and and are comfortable with the risk and really understand what they're buying, what stocks really are and what it means to be a stock holder or a share owner in a publicly traded company. But I'm a big fan of that approach where you invest in companies that you're either already a customer of or you admire, because I think it, it, it reflects a lot on hmm. 
what if if you value the company and you think it's got a good product or a good service, then that's probably a pretty viable company going forward. At least, at least it's definitely a company to consider okay. and to think about. And I think you'll be have a better understanding of what that company is and what it does if you're already a customer. So I really like that strategy. And of course, you always want to be careful about chasing after last year's winners. Lots to think about. And, and I always tell people just really pay attention when you start making decisions, you know, specifically with regard to stocks, individual stocks, and to be mindful of that risk because it can all come crashing down. So should I look, say, at a stock's performance over a decade and make a decision versus over a year? Well, but not every stock's going to have a decade worth of track history to look at. You definitely want to look at what that P.E. ratio is. P.E. ratios, price earnings ratio. Right, because if it's too high, and sometimes we see these P.E. ratios of of over, you know, way up in in the high double digits. And and of course, historically, you know, a good P.E. ratio is somewhere like in the 16 to 22 range. And uh, I think dividends are good. I think when a company pays, even though some of the dividend companies aren't necessarily income, they're income stocks, right? They pay a dividend. They might not be the big high fly growing growth stocks. But I think when a company's at that point where they can pay a consistent dividend, I think that's a good sign. There are apps, you've mentioned, I think, a few of them. Uh, there are apps that basically have gamified investing. Do you like those? I'm leery of them. I, I, I'm, I'm happy that so many people are investing. Like I mentioned earlier, so many more people have started investing post-pandemic. And, uh, and the technology, the fintech has a lot to do with that. And I, I'm, I'm a fan of any movement that's just encouraging people to be responsible investors. But that's the key word, right? Responsible mm-hmm. investing. And I worry that with the gamification on some of these apps, I think some people... Uh, there's a disconnect between is this real money or not, and it's very easy to get kind of caught up in in the hype and the enthusiasm. And and, and some of those uh, apps, I don't think, do a great job of really educating investors in the way that I think they could. I mean, they've got those tools available, but they don't always put them front and center. They're really geared around just the excitement of, of making money, ah. and especially with 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 the gains we've seen and and like the rush with cryptocurrency. They've done a really good job of just marketing to that type of investor, the FOMO crowd, right? The fear of missing out. Yeah, the do- the I dopamine, the dopamine crowd. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's where they're. That's where a lot of that's going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of those people. I mean, there's some people that are really sharp that use those apps, and there's some young people that have just made have built some amazing portfolios for themselves and done some really cool stuff as investors. But uh, any way you're going to slice it, there's there's a learning curve there. It takes time and effort. And uh, not everybody's willing to, to put that time and effort in. And if you're not willing to do that, acknowledge that to yourself. Is there an app you like? I think Robinhood's cool. I mean, I'm, an, I'm old school. I, I grew up with the, with the Vanguard's more traditional investment service firms. And, and that's I prefer those. For me, those work better. Before we go, I want to ask specifically about your expertise in financial literacy in indigenous communities. Is there a particular pitfall or opportunity you see among people in your workshops? There's huge opportunities, Ryan. And what we're seeing now is an unprecedented level of economic development and wealth building happening in tribal communities across the country. And some of that comes from just tribes that have made really good 
decisions with regard to economic development uh, from gaming and other types of tribal enterprises. Mm-hmm. We've also seen some big historic settlements. There was a big Cobell lawsuit uh, a few years ago. It's been described as one of the biggest class action lawsuits in U.S. history, and it resulted in in many Native American people getting some pretty significant windfall payments. Uh, you also just have a lot of Native people who've made some really good career choices, right? They're just doing really well, and they make good income. So we've got a lot of opportunities now for Native people to to take that next step and become investors and, and, and learn more about investing. And as Native people, we're also targeted. There's people that, that see our communities and they recognize that there's wealth in a lot of tribal communities. And unfortunately, there are bad actors out there. that. Um, so we're also seeing an uptick in, in Native Americans being targeted for investment scams and things of that nature, which is another big part of the work that I do with First Nations and in partnership with the FINRA Investor Education Foundation is to provide investment uh, fraud training and awareness hmm. because... Uh, you know, we can teach people how to be great investors, but if somebody can come along and take it all, steal it all in the blink of an eye, we're not doing our job. And so what is a form of fraud that you help indigenous folks try to avoid? Oh, there's been so many, some really interesting cases. There was uh, one scam going around a few years ago in tribal communities where people would get a phone call from somebody representing, who claimed to represent the U.S. Treasury Department, and they would spoof a Washington, D.C. area code so it would look like a legitimate phone number. And they claimed to be a representative from the U.S. Treasury mm-hmm. that had these special grants, special grants available only to Native American people. And they were just randomly cold calling people in tribal communities saying, you qualify for this great grant opportunity from the Treasury. And of course, the catch was that there was a fee involved with the grant, right? You needed to pay a fee in order to access the grant. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I, I, I worked with a couple of people that did actually, you know, engage with the fraud and, and did pay that fee. It was iTunes credits. That's how they 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 were paid. And uh, but what was so sinister about it is these folks were they were targeting tribal communities. They knew where these tribal communities were. They knew who these people where they were and they knew that, uh, you know, that pitch claiming to be from the U.S. Treasury with a grant opportunity, they knew that that was something that would would get Native people's attention. So they'd done some homework. Well, thank you for the education. I really appreciate it, Sean. Absolutely, Ryan. My pleasure. Financial educator Sean Spruce, who is Laguna Pueblo, hosts Native America Calling, He helped bring to a close our year-long series on personal finance, produced by Rachel Estabrook. We're working on a special to collect the best advice we got. It'll air New Year's Day to put you on solid footing for 2024. Still to come, gift ideas from an independent bookseller in Paonia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Two Aurora paramedics injected Elijah McLean with an extra-large dose of a powerful sedative when he was stopped and restrained by police. They're now on trial for manslaughter and second-degree assault for his death. But were their mistakes a crime? Follow the CPR News blog for live updates in the third trial and the death of Elijah McLean. And listen to all the latest developments on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. Books make great gifts. They can be entertaining, enlightening, and bonus, they're easy to wrap. So let's get some recommendations from a bookseller in our backyard. Emily Sinclair owns Paonia Books on Grand Avenue in Paonia, and she has chosen titles with Colorado Connections for readers of all ages 
Emily, happy holidays. Thanks, Ryan. Happy holidays to you, too. By way of introduction, you opened this bookstore last year there in western Colorado. Peonia's only got about, gosh, 1,400 people. Some might see that as a risky venture. What have you found? Well, you're not the first person to suggest that. <laughs> the town is about 1,400 people, but our valley is a whopping four to 5,000 people. But more importantly, this is a town and a valley of readers. There's a long history of literary engagement here from the writers who live here to the high country news legacy mm. to the fact that we still have print media here. We have multiple sources of print media. So this is an excellent place to have a bookstore. Are you finding, we'll get to titles in a moment, but I've just been fascinated by the profusion of new bookstores in and since the pandemic, many of them, you know, mom and pop and tailored to their community. Do you sell lots of other things besides books to pay the bills? No. And interesting that you mentioned that because it's one of the reasons I wanted to open a bookstore in Paonia. About 95 to 97% of what we sell is books. Nationally, about 15 to 18% of bookstore sales are sidelines, which is the other stuff, mm. the t-shirts, the caps. But here, the only other thing that we sell is some art supplies. We are in the book business. A purist, Emily. I'm a purist, yes. (laughs) Okay, to the recommendations. Why don't we start with a work of fiction for those perhaps who are interested in a little bit of an escape? Oh, yeah. We are so lucky in Colorado. It's just we've had an abundance of great books this year. And one of our favorites here in the store is Gilded Mountain by Kate Manning. It's a wonderful novel that checks a lot of boxes for all kinds of readers, In Gilded Mountain, it's an historic novel that takes place in 1907 in the fictional town of Moonstone, which is actually marble, just over the pass from us. Oh, I love marble, where where much of the marble for many of the monuments in Washington came from. Exactly. And this is the story of that. And what Kate Manning has done is created uh, a character named Sylvie Pelletier, who's a 17-year-old whose immigrant father works in the marble quarry. But Sylvie has a problem because she falls in love with the son of sort of the bad robber baron. And so she has some moral questions and misgivings because the workers have terrible working conditions. So it's got a love story. It's got a really pressing social concern. It's got a wonderful bit of Colorado history. And it has some really fabulous characters. For example, Mother Jones, who in real life worked with laborers. And Kate Manning is just an adept writer at plot and at keeping a whole bunch of balls in the air. Gilded Mountain by Kate Manning. How about nonfiction? Nonfiction. I'm going to recommend two books. I, I think I was just supposed to give you one, but you know, we'll take two. when you have abundance, <laughs> yeah, listen, when you can harvest, harvest. Um, <laughs> so one of them is Ben Goldfarb's Crossing. Ben was a former High Country News intern um, whose first book, Eager About Beavers, won a Penn Award. Crossings is fascinating. It is about road ecology. And, you know, the joke is that people are saying, who wants to read a book about roadkill? But it's about so much more. Crossings is about what roadkill means and the impact of our roads on wildlife and what happens to wildlife mating, wildlife migration patterns, 
and to us as a result of our use of roads. Let me give you one example that he opens the book with. He's talking about swallows. And over a relatively short period of time, just around 20 years, swallows, the ones who are surviving, are developing a different feather pattern and wingspan because the ones that can swoop and dive and get away from cars are going to live longer than the ones who have the traditional broader wingspan Hmm. and can't quite navigate. And that's happening across the globe. So this is really a call for us to think about how we use roads and our larger ecosystems and the world that we are a part of and our impact on that world. I suppose the swallows example, it's natural selection, but it seems a bit unnatural, frankly. And it, it makes me think of the wildlife overpasses that are increasingly more popular. So the book is by Ben Goldfarb, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And uh, what's this other nonfiction title you're going to shoehorn in, Emily? <laughs> well, this one, okay, this this one's a triple because it is by James LaRue, who is a Coloradan, who uh, is currently head of Garfield County Public Libraries. And the book is called On Censorship, A Public Librarian Examines Cancel Culture in the U.S. And this is just a beautiful little book that was published this year. It's quite slender. It's only a hundred some odd pages, but it's an important discussion about what book banning means for public institutions like libraries and schools Hmm. and what LaRue does in this book. And LaRue is a, this is so funny. He's a famous librarian. We had a sign up in the store that said he was coming to speak. And all these people came in and said, James LaRue is a famous librarian. I didn't Hmm. know there were famous librarians, (laughs) but there are. And the larger point is that democracy is a process by which we can disagree, but decisions can be made that all of us understand in which all voices are heard. And his take on those who want to ban books is often very compassionate and understanding. He seeks to understand why certain books make them so anxious, but he's also pretty clear about there's a process and you don't always get what you like. And it's a really important manual for people who want to engage more with those issues. On Censorship by James LaRue. Gosh, it makes me wonder if there's a middle ground. In other words, it strikes me that a book is either on the shelf or it's not on the shelf. Does he explore ways of actually, I don't know, making sure that a book reaches a certain audience or is age restricted? Any of those kinds of solutions? Yes, he absolutely does address that. So children's books are in children's sections of the library. And sometimes one of the issues that he's finding in his experience is that people will walk through the library and take a book that is not appropriate for children, put it in the children's section, take a photograph, and then go complain about how the library is putting inappropriate books for children out. So that's that's one issue. Um, Secondarily, there are books that are put out on stands that are highly visible versus books that are merely on the shelf. And so that's one way to deal with it. And third, if you're a parent who has concerns about what your child is reading, come to the library with them. And if you have concerns then you can certainly say, you know, I don't think we're going to be taking this book home today, but maybe for another time. If you're just joining us, Emily Sinclair is with me of Paonia Books, and we're getting some holiday reading recommendations. Gifts for yourself or others. We're, we're not uh, judgmental if you want to be a bit selfish about this. What is something you'd recommend? Oh, for starters, how about older kids? 
Well, I'm going to, I just, I'm so excited about this book. Um, Our beloved Temple Grandin has just published a book called Different Kinds of Minds, A Guide to Your Brain. And this is a book geared towards the eight to 12 year old set. You know, I think we all know that Temple Grandin has had such a profound impact on animal agriculture because of the way that she perceives animals. And she attributes that to her autism, which she calls just a way of being in the world versus uh, a disorder. Mm. She's written extensively for adults on what she calls visual and visual spatial learning. But in this book, she's geared that more towards eight to 12 year olds. And there are so many wonderful things about her approach. And the first one is she asks kids, what is it you love to do? Yes. What is it you want to do? And that's just a magical starting place. And then she goes through the history of famous, famous people from Einstein to Elon Musk to her own experience and says, these people are a little different. And here's what they've been able to give us because they see the world differently than we do. She never talks down to children. And in fact, she introduces some of her own ideas and beliefs. For example, that our schools are so heavily geared towards testing that we're missing the contributions that visual and visual spatial learners can offer because that's not generally picked out up on a test. She talks to kids in this book about her own decision not to be a vegetarian, to eat meat, although her career is founded on compassion for animals. So this is a really wonderful, affirming, respectful book for kids. Temple Grandin, the animal scientist at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, she's written Different Kinds of Minds, and we're scheduled to speak with her soon. I'm excited about that. Okay, maybe for the younger crowd, picture book or something like that? Oh, yeah. We love over here a book by Kate Messner, who's a New York children's book author called Over and Under the Canyon. It's marvelous in so many ways. It's a hardback children's book, so and it's quite beautifully illustrated. And it tells the story of a mother and child who go out into the desert. And what's so interesting about it is that it talks about canyons, which we have an abundance of over here on the Western Slope. Mm-hmm. And not many children's books focus on canyons. We have books about mountains and ponds and rivers and oceans. Hmm. But a canyon is a fascinating thing for a child. And in Kate Messner's telling, There's all kinds of wildlife. Uh, The child in the story is playing with narrow canyons and rocks and seeing insects that are unusual. The canyon in the book is in Southern California, but many of the forms of wildlife are still applicable. And then the family, the mother and son in the story are brown-skinned and dad is white. And so it also introduces the idea of who was in the canyons first. Uh, you know, it allows us to begin to think about who was who here first and also that all kinds of families are welcome in outdoor recreation spaces. Though they may not always feel that way, as we know. Yes. And that's Over and Under the Canyon by Kate Messner. The holidays can be hectic. And if people have limited time, perhaps there's a collection of poetry or short stories you like? Oh, yeah. Well, I want to talk about Wendy Vidalock, who is the Western Slope Poet Laureate. You know, we have Andrea Gibson, who's our Colorado State Poet, whose work is so wonderful. But over here on the Western Slope, you know, we we have our own little way of life. And Wendy's poems 
are just fantastic. And I love her collection, Wise to the West. Her poetry, it's nature-based, yes, as you might expect, but there's also kind of these little wonderful sly social commentaries. There's a line from a poem that I was reading last night. If opinions were religion, we'd all be saints. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be sainted on social media in particular, I guess. (laughs) Right. And also her work is one of my favorite things about poetry is to read it aloud by myself or to the dogs. And her poetry is just wonderfully sonic. Wise to the West. Okay, it's been a heavy year and we're heading into an election year. So I wonder if people might be able to use a laugh these days. Anything that you'd recommend just to be entertained for a little while? Yeah. So here's what I'm going to recommend for that. It's called Rocky Mountain High, A Tale of Boom and Bust in the New Wild West by Boulder's Finn Murphy. Finn Murphy's first book was called The Long Haul, and he was a long haul trucker. Yes. So in The Long Haul, he was talking about moving moving for high-end houses, moving fancy furniture. And after he did that, he said, well, I think I'm going to buy a piece of land outside Boulder and I'm going to become a hemp farmer. And he just has this wonderful kind of raconteur style where he's just a fun storyteller. And yet at the same time, what's undergirding this story of how do I go in the hemp business and make a little money now that I don't want to be a long haul trucker is let's look at the land and the history of the land that we're planting on. Let's look more broadly at the hemp and the marijuana businesses. And he comes at it from a businessman's perspective. So if you've got one of those people in your life who says, well, I just want to read business books. This is kind of a hybrid. It's funny. It's smart. And good for a lot of people on your list. I'm fascinated by the notion of a funny business book. I just love that. Rocky Mountain High by Finn Murphy. Emily, thank you so much. Happy holidays. Thank you, Ryan. Happy holidays to you, too. Emily Sinclair of Peonia Books. will have her recommendations at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these bookworms. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC. 